Welcome to another inspirational episode of Monetizing Your Creativity. We're with an old friend of mine, Tim Carter, a writer, producer, and co-owner of uh, Santa Monica, California-based Contradiction Films. The first step down that road was simply writing video games because I needed to be doing something. And then I very quickly became sort of established as a, as a go-to guy in the industry, and I started to know a lot of people in the industry. Monetizing Your Creativity asks the question, what does it take to earn a living with your creative talents? Hollywood is like a castle. On the outside of the castle are the barbarian hordes. Uh, the people inside the castle know that they need fresh blood. They, they're always looking for creative talent. The problem is it's a horde of barbarians out there. So they're always trying to figure out how do we reach over the wall and pluck the one guy that we want. We focus on the success principles common to all disciplines by interviewing producers, directors, writers, actors, cinematographers, music composers, animators, designers, and much, much more. Learn how to create your own path to success. Let's roll. Hello, everyone. This is Marvin Polis, your host for Monetizing Your Creativity. And with me, as always, is your other host, Fred Keating. We are in Vancouver, Canada, one of the biggest and uh, most influential production centers in the world when it comes to film, television, and music. We are overlooking False Creek. We're in a tower right now. Beautiful view. Fred, tell me who we're with. Well, we're with an old friend of mine, Tim Carter, a writer, producer, and co-owner of uh, Santa Monica, California-based Contradiction Films, currently involved in prep for the Dead Rising feature film, which uh, is related to Dead Rising 2. Now, the gaming industry is overlapping, if you will, uh, with, in fact, the... uh, feature film industry. This is an intriguing topic. Well, this is an intriguing guy. Tim, thank you for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me, Fred. What I'd like to start by asking you is where you were before you were here now. That is, how'd you start? What's your particular path to the piles of paper I see on the table in front of us here? (laughs) Sure. Uh, Well, I always wanted to be a writer. So I came out of university with uh, a couple of degrees and I worked in an academic setting for a while in in, uh, political science. And then I realized that that was not going to get me where I wanted to go and moved into sort of uh, backed into journalism in a sense, uh, freelance writing at first and then um, into publications. So I was the managing editor of a magazine and I ran a newspaper for a little while and and worked in that world. Um, And as part of that, I also sort of spent a fair bit of time in corporate writing. So this was just anything you could do to make a living as a writer, Um, whether it was for local newspapers, I wrote for the Vancouver Sun at uh, one point a little bit, uh, or annual reports, corporate brochures, things like that. That's a really really good living, um, but pretty dry. And at the time, was that where you wanted to go and where you wanted to be? That was just what my skill set was. And I needed a job, you know, Uh, and you couldn't, I mean, you could, and um, it probably, it might've got me where I am now a little quicker, leave university and go immediately into sort of screenplay writing. But uh, it's very hard to make a living at that. Whereas you can go to a graphic design company, or you could at that time, uh, 25 odd years ago, and get a job writing annual reports that was, you know, a really decent sort of middle-class job. Uh, you know, you could you could get a mortgage with that kind of job. But at some point, I had money in the bank, and I just, that's not what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Uh, and I sort of hit that point that a lot of people hit, where it's like, well, if I'm going to jump, I need to jump now. And so I made the transition to uh, screenwriting, uh, kind of without anywhere to go. I just sort of said, okay, 
I'm a screenwriter now, took a couple classes and had enough money to not need to um, worry about uh, cash for a bit. Tim, I want to hear about how you made that jump. How did you get that first gig in screenwriting? That's a really good question. I guess it depends on what you mean by gig. If you mean the first time I got paid, it wasn't even uh, technically to write a script. It was to read scripts, provide coverage, provide sort of feedback to a local producer here. And I got that job by um, A, wanting to do it and starting to bounce around. But then I was instrumental in forming a little group in Vancouver that we called ourselves Critical Mass. It was just a bunch of people that, um, frankly, everyone was a couple notches above me. They had either done a little independent film that had actually been made, or they were somehow uh, working in the industry at a entry level or maybe just a shade above entry level position. And we would get together about once a month and talk about what we were doing. But mainly we would invite someone who was further along than us, who was a success locally, to come and talk about what their journey had been and what their experience was and to offer us insight. And we just said, look, you could have each of us call and bug you to take you out to coffee or you can come, we'll give you a dinner and you can kind of knock off 12 people at once, right? Uh, and... Uh, uh, one of the people that came was a fellow named Gavin Wilding, who was making horror films at the time, principally horror films. He made a few other things, and uh, we used to host them at my house. And, and at the end of it, he said, hey, if you if you want to do something, I like I don't really have very much money, but I got work that needs to be done. Why don't you come by the office? And that led to, you know, the sort of beginning to actually uh, legitimately work in the film industry. Tell us about the concept of coverage. What's that mean? Well, it, it means, I mean, producers of all stripes are getting a ton of stuff submitted to them. They sort of might want to mine either for actually the script or, okay, I don't need that script because it came in out of the clear blue sky, but maybe the writer is good, right? And maybe I can take that, uh, either take the script, go back to the writer and say, look, this doesn't work, but if you did it this way, we might be interested, or this is never going to work, but we like your writing voice you know, we have this other thing that we're doing, you know, could you come either take a pass at a script or whatever? It, it gets the guy a job based on his writing sample, and they don't have time to read the tons of stuff that comes in. So by you taking that job in order to read through in publishing, they call it a slush pile, but uh, that those hundreds of, of submitted scripts, it gave you as a an already accomplished writer in one field, an opportunity to really study a screenplay structure and what worked and what didn't and character development? Yeah, I think to some degree it gives you that. I mean, reading scripts is a good way to realize at least what doesn't work in scripts because most scripts are terrible um, that come in. Uh, but inevitably what it does is start a relationship with that producer who at some point is like, why are we wasting time? Why don't you just write it? Is really where it almost inevitably goes, right? Especially in a small operation. I think a lot of coverage is done at big agencies or big studios. That's a much harder hoop to jump through. But if you're at a small shop where it's one guy and, and his point of view is I just don't have time for this like typically we're a small company right I this is we're Saturday morning at 10 30 a.m. I probably have 50 hours of work to do this weekend right so uh, it just doesn't uh, it doesn't line up at some point it's just easier for him to get you to do it you know is this what you were thinking at the time is that this is a great way to start building relationships yeah I guess so I mean it's just you it, when someone offers you something like that and I had the luxury of not needing to worry about where my next paycheck came from is like, sure, I'll come in and do it. At the very least, I'm going to learn how this guy operates and the decisions he makes and what his day looks like. And that's going to be valuable, you know, and, and it's also possible. I mean, Gavin is still a friend of mine. He still works in the industry, although he's not really producing these days. But, you know, you might make a great contact there. You might make contact with someone else who's coming in and out of the office, right? Like you just never know. 
So how did you make the uh, uh, segue from uh, writer to producer and co-owner of a production company yourself? It became clear to me pretty quickly that um, I wasn't going to make a living as a screenwriter in Vancouver. Uh, and if I had been younger and probably more adventurous, I would have moved to L.A. and attempted to do it there where there are tons of jobs, right? I mean, there are 25 people for every available job, but there are lots of jobs. But there just wasn't very much uh, available to me in Vancouver if I was relying on other people to hire me. Uh, and I've always had a little bit of an entrepreneurial side to my, to my sort of approach to work. And so the first part of the process was saying, if I'm going to make a living as a writer, it's going to be because I'm hiring myself. So I need to be a producer as well. And hanging around at Rampage was the production company. You could see what this is what a producer does all day, right? And you sort of think, okay, well, I can do that. But I didn't really have the business side of it in the way that I wanted. I thought, well, I'll be great at the creative side. But I had a friend who had sold a company. His name's Tomas. He's the other co-owner of Contradiction. He had sold a company in another industry and was just kicking around the globe, uh, but he was looking for something to do. He'd spent a couple of years kind of going from one beach to the other, and but he was at that time 33 or something. He's like, I can't just spend the rest of my life on beaches, and said, look, I'll handle the creative, you handle the business, move to Vancouver, and, and let's start a company. And so, you know, we just sort of did it by, by planting a flag and saying, okay, we're a company now. And then you went to where... Many people still think the center of the action is L.A. Yeah, at the time we had a couple of scripts that um, that I had already written that people were saying they wanted to do. And that was the, the other reason to start the company was it felt like there were things that were just about to go. And, um, of course, that wasn't true. Uh, you know, like you, you're always sort of uh, on the verge of things that never happen. Tomas came to Vancouver. We set up a company within about six to eight months. Both of those projects had uh, failed to go forward. Uh, and so we went to L.A. for a couple of months thinking, well, we'll start to build a network here. Uh, and then when we came back, we sort of looked at each other and went, we have to be there. We packed up and, and moved, which was easier for him because he was, uh, you know, still a fairly transient guy at that point and a little more traumatic for me having spent my whole life in Vancouver. But uh, it was clearly the thing to do, you know, if you wanted to get ahead. See, it's interesting to me that, that by the time most people in the entertainment industry come face-to-face -face with a producer, the project has already been set, and the money is on the way there, if not already there. They don't imagine that the producer himself or herself has spent some years trying to pull projects together that may be just ready to go and then fall apart for any number of reasons. We only see producers at the table when, in fact, the project is greenlit and ready to roll. So this is all valuable intel, I think, for, for folks who assume that all producers have these projects coming out of their ears and all have been greenlit and ready to go. Yeah, no, it's years and years and years of pushing rocks up hills to try and get things going and to try to build the relationships necessary to get things going. And then and then even when they are going, it's a constant juggle of, you know, trying to keep them on the on the tracks and keep the, you know, juggling between the one you're making now and the ones coming down the road so that when you, you know, when I finish Dead Rising 2, there'll be another one, you know, if not quite, I actually would like it if it wasn't anything set up to go because I could use a vacation. But, you know, there was something a month out or something like that. Now, Tim, you mentioned that there is a business side of being a producer and then there's also the creative side of being a producer. For the benefit of our listeners, can you kind of break that down for us briefly? Entertainment is a business, so um, there are business considerations in uh, in everything. That's my assistant editor chiming in there. Thank you. I just want to go on record saying it wasn't me making those cat-like sounds in the background. Normally you do, Fred, but this time we can blame it on the uh, the putty tap. 
he would like to go outside. So would I, but we have work to do. Entertainment is a business. And so, you know, there is, um, there is a whole sort of aspect to running a production company that's about sort of managing assets and acquiring uh, material and building the sort of relationships, particularly in Hollywood, that are necessary to sort of actually be able to get to the point where you're on set or writing a script or doing any of that side. And then there's, you know, we don't have the luxury of working with unlimited amounts of, of money, whether it's in our own operation or when we're producing. So then, you know, there's a, a second sort of business side, which is getting the most out of what you have, right? And trying to figure out how to take the assets that you have, whether it's contacts or the rights to IP and, and leverage them. Like what sort of what paths do you take them down is a really important strategic business question. And that's my business partner, Tomas. That's really his sort of forte. What can you tell us about contradictions move into the gaming arena? How did that come about? You know, it, it was um, partly happenstance and partly sort of uh, strategic planning. I think when you look at strategic planning for an entertainment company, it's as much as anything being willing to sort of pursue the um, opportunities that fall into your lap, sometimes by accident. So I moved back to Vancouver in uh, 2008, I believe, 2000, late 2007, just temporarily because there was a writer's strike in L.A. that was protracted and known to be protracted. Everyone knew it was going to last for months and months, and I simply needed to work. So I came back to Canada because I'm a Canadian and, and there was no writer's strike up here, and very quickly uh, started writing video games because even though the film and TV industry was very slow at that point, but the video game industry was exploding at that time. Uh, there were, like, every major game company in the world had a studio in Vancouver, I think, and were working on content and desperately needed quality writers. How do you write a video game? There are scripts for video games? Yeah, they don't look like a film script, but, you know, a lot of games have dialogue in them. A lot of games are narratively driven. You know, I've done everything from just writing the tutorial because the game is driving race cars and there's nothing in the game uh, but somewhere the game needs to talk to you and explain things to you to you know immense sort of narrative driven story based games where I think you know I, I wrote a game called Sleeping Dogs there's 50,000 lines of spoken dialogue right it's probably the equivalent of 20 movies or something um, now some of that dialogue is you know you know, get out of my way or something like that. It's not, it's not real high art. And I guess some of it would be non-linear as well. Yeah, that's an open world game. I mean, most games are, it's rare now to see a truly linear game. Usually there are all sorts of, um, at the very least, conditions in place. So if this, then that sort of thing. And games like Sleeping Dogs, where there was um, a huge amount of story, but you could do it in any order you wanted. There were sort of big story points, but then you had a whole sort of the rest of the world needed to understand where you you were in the story so that people would talk to you in a particular way depending on what you had done. In addition to that, to make the world feel real, if you walk into a room, the other people in the room need to be having a conversation. And sometimes it's just about the fact that they're getting a divorce, but sometimes it's about something you have done, right? So that the world feels like it responds to you. Uh, and those conversations have to be very carefully scripted out so that they evolve over time to reflect what the player has done. So you went into, with your feature film script screenplay writing background and contributed to the success of these games and now it's come full circle and you are writing feature films based on the games yeah i think the so the the first step down that road was simply writing video games because i needed to be doing something and then i very quickly became sort of established as a as a go-to guy in the industry and i started to know a lot of people in the industry 
Uh, and also, when you're going in and out of game studios, as a member of the game development team, you learn how games are made and what the issues are for the people making them, what the executive producers care about, what they don't care about, that sort of thing, so that you sort of become an insider, which is something that most of um, the Hollywood side of the industry is not and doesn't understand. And so, therefore, you know, you can kind of speak the language, which becomes really valuable when you get to... Um, adapting video games. And so as the writer strike ended and we started thinking about what we're going to do next, you know, my business partner Tomas was sort of, uh, and I both sort of said, we need to exploit this new avenue that we have. Now we have a niche that separates us from kind of all of our competitors, right? We're on the inside of the video gaming industry and, you know, the number of people who are is very, very small. Uh, so we used that in part to start pursuing uh, the rights to video games, the film and t TV rights. Uh, but we, you know, I think our first really big break in that uh, path was Warner Brothers wanted to do an adaptation of Mortal Kombat. And they had a very, very small amount of money in the world of Warner Brothers. So they needed someone on the outside who was kind of an indie guy. The plan at the beginning was to really leverage the assets that were in the game and the relationships that came with that. So they needed someone who... Uh, had an indie sensibility, and who was on the inside of the gaming industry. And, you know, it's a short list of two at that point, right? And I happened to bump into a, an executive from Warner Brothers at uh, the Banff TV Festival and was pitching her something else. And I was looking for someone else to back it. And I sort of did my pitch. And at the end of it, she went, yeah, that's kind of cool. And we might do that one day, but you need to stop everything you're doing because we're sending you a different project that we want you to start on right away. But the background in gaming was the thing that set us apart. Uh, and that led to me producing Mortal Kombat Legacy, which then had a huge splash in the gaming world so that when we went to get the rights to things, people are like, oh, you're the guys that did that. And you wrote these video games. Okay. Of everyone that's come through our door, you're the only ones with that background. And that led us to be able to start licensing games, not least of which was Dead Rising. And that, you know, in turn started us off as doing film adaptations. So to some extent, the success comes from not trying to be like everybody else, but, you know, this is just marketing, right? It's, it's find a way to be different than everybody else. Find a, a niche where you're better than everybody else. Yeah, I think that's it exactly, is there are a tremendous number of people trying to break into Hollywood. And um, unless you're somebody's cousin, uh, how do you separate yourself? It's a huge uphill battle, both to get somewhere at the end of the day, but even just to distinguish yourself from the crowd. A metaphor that I often use is it's like Hollywood is like a castle. And on the outside of the castle are the barbarian hordes. Uh, the people inside the castle know that they need fresh blood. They, they're always looking for creative talent. The problem is it's a horde of barbarians out there. So they're always trying to figure out how do we reach over the wall and pluck the one guy that we want out of the horde without opening the gate. And so, you know, you're always trying to get inside the castle. That's when you're starting off. You need to get from the the horde to the castle, uh, not to play this metaphor too much, but, you know, uh, a, a big challenge for people coming up is that many of the other people that went in and did the pitch before you are bozos. And so the people who are looking, you know, when you go in, the first thing you have to do is establish that you're not that. And then, you know, the next thing is how do I get, you know, how do I create an angle for myself? And gaming was ours. So how do they 
pick off those few people who are outside the, the castle walls? Well, there's no real system to it, right? That's the thing. It's not like, uh, I think there's an industry out there that wants to convince you that if you go to the Screenwriters Expo or something, that this is the place where they cherry pick people. But I don't think it's the case. I think often it's, you know, you are the assistant to somebody and you get a shot. Uh, Occasionally someone, you know, one in a million writes a fantastic spec script and everyone hears about it. But it's a lot more likely to be because of, you know, because... Gavin Wilding was too busy to write, to read his own scripts coming in. and Sure, and you were smart enough, savvy enough to see an opportunity and take it. But I think it does all kind of come back to relationships, not who you know, but who knows you. Yeah. And their impression of, of your ability to be that one barbarian. Do you mind terribly? I'm seeing time cop eyes in Marvin here. Maybe. That was the cat. That was the cat? That was the cat. The, the cat, cat was staring you down. Fred. All right. The cat is also telling us it's probably time to end this segment. But but may we come back again, Tim? And I, I want to pursue this aspect of relationships and getting on people's radar and the care and feeding of, of cats. Sure. Absolutely. Thanks for tuning in to Monetizing Your Creativity. Be sure to join us next time by subscribing to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave a review. It helps us with our ratings. You can also visit monetizingyourcreativity.com for more information about the show. And hey, be sure to tell your friends who want to understand how to monetize their creativity.